0: about four or five years ago, as uh, Beth and I were backing out of the driveway with the kids in the van, um, my neighbor, this guy that lived behind us, came running up to the car to the driver's side window, and I didn't see him coming because I'm, you know, doing one of these deals where I'm looking over my right shoulder, and so he comes, like, out of nowhere and bangs on the window, which ought to be illegal, you know, because it scared me half to death. So I spun around, and there he is, and his face is about two inches from the glass, and he looks like he's at about 40 cups of coffee at Starbucks. And immediately I knew this was not going to be good. And so I roll the window down, and, you know, he, did, he skips all the niceties. It's not, hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Oh, wow, the kids are growing up, and mommy, we ought to get together for dinner. And oh, by the way, he just, like, almost in my face shouts, have you seen a little boy? And I don't even know what to say to that. I'm just like, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, these people, and they got the White House they're about three doors down from me, and they're across the street, and there's this lady, and she's got like a three-year-old little boy, and you know, do you know who they are? I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I've seen him, I, I, I guess. Well, the little boy was playing in the backyard. It's a fenced-in backyard. He's played in the backyard a hundred times. Mom's watching him through the window. He's there one minute. The next minute, he's gone. And so mom starts looking. You know, mom goes out in the backyard. She's not freaking out. I mean, how's your kid going to get out of here? He's three. So she's looking around, looking around, getting a little anxious, kind of calling his name, wondering what the deal is. She goes back in the house, thinking, okay, maybe he's in the house. She starts looking all through the house. She goes back to the backyard. Maybe I missed something. She comes back into the house. Maybe I missed something. After exhausting all options, she comes out into the front yard where she encounters my neighbor, who then starts heading toward Bayview Drive, which is, hello, where I live, also happens to be the busiest street in the neighborhood, and I'm the first guy that he encounters. Have you seen a little boy? no well do me a favor pull up in your driveway and just go in your backyard and look and see if he's in your backyard and check your pool so you know we pulled up and i ran in the house and we all just kind of went back in the house trip canceled went running out into the backyard went right to the pool good news no kid in my pool but he's not anywhere else to be found either. So I come running back in the house and I said, look, I'm going to go help find this kid. And my neighbor went down one street and I went down this other street and we just started knocking on everybody's doors. Have you seen a little boy? The house, the white, you know, the dentist is three and he was in the backyard and now he's gone and would you check your backyard? Check the pool. So I'm doing that. My neighbor's going down the other street. Meanwhile, Mom now is in the car, and she's driving through the neighborhood, calling out the kid's name. The police show up about ten minutes after that. Now they're driving around the neighborhood, and what's happening is, as we're traveling down these two parallel streets, my neighbor and I, after everybody's checked their backyard and so forth, they're coming out into the road. It's like this mission to find this kid possessed the entire neighborhood. And the good news is that he was found. He was like two blocks over, he was in somebody else's front yard, and apparently he was like on the hood of their car, which is bizarre to me. Maybe it was warm or something, I you know. But really, I mean, how does a three-year-old kid, and what's he doing on the... But then again, he must have climbed the fence. So this kid's like Spider-Man, all right? Don't ever underestimate the climbing abilities of your three-year-old as sort of a corollary lesson today. But it was so interesting, you know, as the news spread down the street, and everybody's in the street, it was like this tidal wave of relief and joy spread through the neighborhood as we heard that this kid was found, and as this kid, no doubt, was enjoying the longest, tightest, warmest, most thankful, tearful hug of his entire life. But why? Why was the whole neighborhood possessed with finding this kid? Why? Why were we so relieved, so full of joy? I literally, I went home, I took five Tylenol and just laid on the couch. It was unbelievable. But why? Why were you sitting there thinking, oh, dear Lord, let the story end well. Because we all understand and agree on something we all of us here understand and agree that what was lost was really precious. As we continue this morning with this series of messages that we started last week, and then as we continued, as we plugged into our community groups, this study that we're doing that we're calling the kingdom as we study together the kingdom parables of Jesus, Jesus is going to call us to understand And to agree with him on something. And that is that people are precious. And not just three year old, cute, innocent, Spider Man like people, but all people. This morning as we continue this series that we're calling the kingdom, I just want to remind you of what the kingdom is. It's Jesus' favorite expression for his mission, which is what? It's thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And so it's the total transformation of earth is the idea into that which is heaven. That's like where we're headed. That's the ultimate goal. That's the picture to keep in mind. That's the program that we can get involved in. As Jesus Christ captures us with that vision... And then by his Holy Spirit, begins to transform this sin-stained, sorrow-filled, mostly filthy, mostly broken planet into the kingdom of God, into the place that is perfect, into a world where God's will is done on earth, even as it is in heaven. But But how does that happen? Because we talked about that last week too. It happens as that vision of the kingdom, as that message of the kingdom, finds by God's grace good soil in my heart and in your heart and then does what a seed in good soil does. Transforms. Puts down roots. Throws up fruit. It's utterly transformational. It happens as the kingdom transforms us individual by individual, but then through us has a transformational effect in our homes, in our offices, in our schools, in our classrooms, and then collectively together as a church in this city. As we not only tell people how to be forgiven of sin by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, but also as we do battle against the effects of sin, as we undo the curse of, as we minister to the sick and to the hurting, as we feed and clothe the homeless and the hungry, as we assist single moms and troubled teens, and as we reach out together to widows and to orphans. See, that's how heaven comes to earth, through humble people like you and me. But why should we do that? We should do that because the kingdom should so grip us and transform us that we come to understand and to agree with Jesus on something. And it's that people are precious. People matter to God and they need to matter to us. And Jesus calls us to that understanding in the kingdom parables that we're going to look at this morning. It's the parable of the lost sheep and then also the parable of the lost coin. He calls us to understand in those stories and to agree in those stories that people are, in fact, precious. But again, here's the rub. It's not just three-year-old, really cute, Spider-Man-like, and everybody adores him, people. It's every kind of people. Every color, every race, every creed, every nation, every tribe, every manner of person, rich and poor educated, uneducated, young and old, and then here's really the bottom line. Are you ready for this? Good, quote-unquote, because we all have our different definitions of that, and bad, quote-unquote, because we all have our different definitions of that too. Jesus calls us to an understanding that people are precious, even the ones where if we were real honest, we'd look at and say, I'm such a good person. Luke says this in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. He says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all... That's such a cool word. It's like a funnel, man. I mean, they're all just pouring out. They're all drawing near to Jesus. And if you're familiar with the life of Jesus, you find this all over the life of Jesus. It's one of the most clear patterns in his life that the tax collectors, the sinners, the really, really bad people, as they were labeled in that culture, And it was not an undeserving label. We're drawn to Christ. Irresistibly drawn to Jesus. Who then received them. And the really moral people, the religiously observant people, the so-called good people, everybody would have looked at them and gone, oh yeah, really good people, really good class. Those guys reject Jesus. And why do they reject Jesus? Because he accepts the bad guys. It's all over the Gospels. It's all over Luke. In Luke chapter 7, for example, what Luke does is he collects up these two groups, sinners or tax collectors and really, quote-unquote, good people, and then he puts them together in the stories, and he says, see the contrast? Luke chapter 7, Jesus encounters a prostitute, sinner, okay, and a Pharisee, allegedly a good guy, certainly an outwardly moral guy, And what happens in the story? Well, the sinner is drawn to Christ and is received by Christ and the Pharisees so put out by that that he rejects Jesus. We see it in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus tells the story of a good Samaritan. That's ridiculous. There were no good Samaritans. But he tells this story of the good Samaritans and in fact... He received Samaritans. You look in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. That's a Samaritan woman and not just a Samaritan woman, but a Samaritan promiscuous woman. There are so many strikes against this woman, every one of which would have labeled her sinner or bad. And Jesus reveals himself profoundly to her. Stunning. And then he tells the story, the good Samaritan, and who is he rebuking? Who is he educating with this story? It's a so called expert in the mosaic or the religious law. Fascinating, isn't it? You see it in Luke chapter 19 with the story of Zacchaeus, not just a tax collector, oh no, no, chief tax collector, head honcho bad guy. And there he not only offends the religious, you know, establishment, he offends everybody in town. Everybody in town. We see it here this morning. Luke says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. It's like a magnet. And here we go. The Pharisees and the scribes, the so-called good people, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, bad people. And he eats with them, he identifies with them. Why does he do that? because they're precious. And he calls us in these stories to understand and to agree with him on that. It's fascinating. You know, it's so ironic. It's like the the, the people that he's telling these stories to are, are the people who, quite frankly, should have been the most compassionate towards sinners and tax collectors. They should have had the most humble approach towards sinners and tax collectors. They should have been the ones who were most accepting of tax collectors and sinners, and they were the exact opposite of all of those things. The very thing that they should have been applauding Jesus for, commending Jesus for, uplifting Jesus, and holding him forth as an example before all of society as a guy who really gets it, Okay, becomes the very thing that they reject Jesus for. Jesus doesn't tell these stories to contend for the souls of the so-called bad people of his day. He's contending for the souls of the so-called good ones. Unless we think that he's not contending with our souls, we've got to, I think, look very transparently into our own heart and to say, who do I call tax collector? Who do I call sinner? Who is it that if I saw them hanging out with Jesus and Jesus accepting them, I just, I just, I, you know, I mean, I'm not sure what I would do. Who is it? All right, I'm going to push your buttons for a minute, okay? How about people in the porn industry? I'm not talking about people that look at porn. I'm talking about people that make it. I'm talking about people that import it into your house, onto your Blackberries, targeting your children. I'm talking about people who survey the children's websites out there, and then they calculate which words could be easily misspelled when your kid is trying to get to that website, and then they create a porn site with the misspelled word. That's who I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who go to the governmental websites, and then, and, you know, which are .gov, and then they create a .com or a .org or a .net. Why are they doing this? Because they know that this stuff is like crack, and it is like crack. It is highly addictive. So many guys that I look up to and admire and love have struggled, great friends of mine have struggled with this hugely. All of us should bring ginormous humility to this issue, for we are all of us clay, and any one of us can give into it in any moment. But it's insidious, And I'll be very frank. I don't get all warm and fuzzy when I think about those guys. I just don't. What about you? And if you saw Jesus, you know, hanging out with and accepting them, they're just pouring out. He's like standing in front of the convention, and they're just coming out to Christ, you know? I mean, what do you think? How do you feel? What do you do? Let me give you another example. I'll push some other buttons. How about political homosexual activists? And I am not talking about the average gay or man woman, or a- average man or woman. I, and I want to stop and say, you know, one of the tragedies, I think, of the church is that somehow the church has sent the message to the gay community that we are not accepting, and that is wrong. They are no more or less a sinner than I am. But that's not the group that I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who are trying to redefine marriage. I'm talking about people who are trying to re-educate America's you know, children in terms of sexuality via the public school. I, I'm talking about radical political activists. That's who I'm talking about, and I'm talking about it because I know that that pushes some of your buttons. So there's Jesus, and you're pouring out to him. Do you rejoice? Do you? Do you? Is there any compassion in your heart for these people as fellow, broken, sinful, but for the sovereign choice of God? There go on. Or do you draw lines? Because Jesus doesn't draw lines. It's remarkable. You go all through his ministry, no lines drawn. Now, he draws lines in terms of morality. He draws lines in terms of right and wrong. He draws lines in terms of the law of God. He is the most righteous, most holy man that has ever or will ever live. And he calls us to live the most holy life on planet Earth. It's part of the reason why the rest of the world is discouraged when they look at us because they kind of intuitively understand that and then we disappoint them. So he stands for righteousness like no one ever has or will. But there's never a story where some scandalous sinner comes along to Jesus and he says, you know what, I think that this is it. I mean, I have reached the end. I can take the adulterer and I can take the, the homosexual person and I can take the you know uh, uh, liberal socialistic Democrat and I can take the liberal socialistic Republican because they exist too, apparently. But you? I don't know. I think that's it. He doesn't do it. Why does he not do it? Because they're precious. Jesus is calling us to understand that people are precious. And by that, he means all kinds of people. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes, and maybe a few of us, grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And in response, what happens? It says, so Jesus told them this parable. Who this parable? The so-called good folks. And he says, what man of you having a hundred sheep? Now stop there. He's casting them in the role of a shepherd, which itself is a little offensive to them in that day, perhaps because shepherds also were moral outcasts. They were bad people too. Sinners. But biblically, it's accurate. These guys are the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, and they are called to be shepherds to the people of Israel. And so now Jesus is saying, what man of you having a hundred sheep? Which in those days, by the way, was a pretty good sized flock. It sort of implies that there were probably more than one shepherd governing over it. What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country, the idea being with the other shepherds. So they're not neglected. Don't worry about them. Quite frankly, they're not the focus. If he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until when? Until he gets tired? Until it runs up against the 5.30 dinner hour? That'd be a tough one for me. Tilly just gets so frustrated that he throws his hands up in the air and says, that's it, you know what, this stinking sheep has gone too far this time. Fine, you're done, I wash my hands of you. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost, one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. The clear implication being that to do anything less than that is wrong. And you know what, these guys didn't even argue with that. The shepherd looks for the lost sheep until the lost sheep is found. And why does the shepherd do that? Because just like all the other sheep that are already safely in the fold, he knows that that lost sheep, that lost sheep is precious too. You now it's interesting to me as I learned a little bit about sheep that probably they knew that we don't, you know, this week. One of the things I learned is that when a sheep wanders off and gets lost, most of the time what it does is it just flops down on the ground. And then it just lays there and it doesn't move. Now, what does that mean? Because they would have kind of, you know, intuitively understood that. I mean, they've seen sheep. They grew up around sheep. I try to stay away from sheep, to be very frank. But, I mean, what, what does that imply? That implies that if, if they don't have somebody who cares enough about them to keep looking until that sheep is found, that sheep is not going anywhere. The sheep's not going to get up and somehow try to kind of find a way home. You have to go look for him. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he finds it, he gives it a map and he highlights the route and he says, here, you can get home on your own. I mean, you really got to be dumb to screw this up. In fact, forget the map. Let me give you one of these little TomTom GPS deals. I'll give you sort of a tutorial on it. It's pretty simple, really. If you just follow this, I've already plugged in the destination and where you are, and so you just, you know, I mean, you, you have to be an idiot to screw it up. He calls somebody else and says, look, I found the sheep. Here are the coordinates. You have a GPS. Come find him. Get him home. No, he gets down on the ground with this sheep that's given up. And he's lying in the dirt. And somehow he gets that dude off the ground and up onto his shoulders. And I don't know how far he's going to have to walk and I don't know what kind of terrain he's going to have to travel. But he gets him all the way home and as you'll see in a second, he doesn't grumble about it. It's really no burden and why does he do it? because it's precious to him and because sometimes that's what it takes. Finding sheep is tough. And then getting them up off the ground out of the filth of sin, well, that's hard too. But sometimes you got to get down on your knees and sometimes you got to get down in the dirt and sometimes you got to kind of figure out a way. And I mean, darn near throw your back out. Maybe you do throw your back out. I don't know. But you got to get that dude up on your shoulders. And you have to get a whole lot of sheep stink on you too, by the way, when you deal with sheep. But that's bringing heaven to earth. That's not only taking the message of the gospel verbally to people. It's taking the message of the gospel physically to people. It's not only leading people to the cross where they can be forever forgiven of sin and have eternal life, but it's also battling against the effects of sin in this world. And we're called to do both. What man of you have a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he gives it the longest, tightest, warmest, most thankful, tearful hug of its life. And then he lays it on his shoulders, grumbling and, and moaning and complaining. And what a pain. And no, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And they do. Why do they do that? Because they all understand and agree that what was lost, well, was precious. And it's so cool because then this giant wave of, you know, relief and joy comes down the street and they all go home and take five Tylenol and lay on the couch. It's awesome. And then what does Jesus do? He opens up the heavens and He says, now let me show you heaven. Let me give you the perspective of God on lost sheep. The man who came from heaven will now speak of it. He says, just so I tell you, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Jesus is not saying that there are people who don't need to repent. He's saying that like many of us here today, there are a whole bunch of people who already have. They're in the fold. And the focus is on those who aren't. It's on the lost sheep. It's on their value. And then just in case we missed it, he says, or what woman having ten silver coins? So now he tells us another story, kind of the same kind of story. And if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep what would have been dirt or stone floors of her house and seek diligently, meaning intensely, energetically, even strategically. She lights a lamp. That's going to help with the process. She doesn't sweep the ceiling. Coins don't fall up, generally speaking. There's a methodology to what she's doing but she's really going after it. What woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and diligently seek it until she gets tired and the phone rings and she gets distracted and she wonders, what was I just doing? And then, you know, and then that's the end of it. No, until she finds it, she's possessed with the mission of finding the coin. Why? Because just like all the other coins in her bag, safely in her bag, She knows that that one that's lost, well, that's precious too. No matter, by the way, where it's rolled off to or what it's rolled off through. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it and when she has found it, calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost, and they all do. Because they all understand and agree that what was lost is precious. And again, the window of heaven is open, and Jesus says, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why? Because just like all the rest of us sinners, the lost sinners are precious Him, And that's true, by the way, no matter what his or her sin may be. It's interesting, isn't it? People matter to God and they need to matter to us. But then how will they know that they matter? Because it won't just be by what we say. It will be primarily by what we do. It's by what we do. It's ministering to the sick and hurting. It's feeding and clothing the hungry and the homeless. It's assisting single moms and troubled teens. It's reaching out to widows and orphans. Why? Because they're precious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus, who not only came looking for us on planet Earth, but the Good Shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. We praise You for the glory of the One who took upon Himself all of our filth and dirt, who found us sitting, lying, stuck, and who then Himself took our sin, and carried it up a hill and put it to death in His body on a cross. We thank You. Lord, we thank You for the vision of a kingdom, of a place that is unbroken, and for a destination that is sure for us who have faith. And Lord, I pray that You would give us a heart that is captured by that kingdom that we might proclaim it with our mouths and with our lives and that heaven can begin to come into earth through each one of us. We pray that for your glory. Lord, we pray that for your lost sheep that they might be found and we might have the privilege of helping in the matter. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today... I want to show you guys a video of an event that was scheduled a long time ago, but I think has taken on a little bit of new meaning. It's going to be held. Health-